Hello, and welcome back to Mothering Earth. I'm your host, Salwa Khan. The Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin, Texas, is replete with native plant gardens, a website packed with useful information about all kinds of plants and wildflowers, and an impressive list of experts on nature and all her wonders. If you're a gardener, you'll be excited to know that in this program, you'll hear from one of those experts, the director of horticulture, who shares her many insights on designing a garden, on native plants, on how to manage plants when it gets really hot, and on pollinators. Let's begin. I'm honored today to be talking to Andrea DeLong Amaya, who is the director of horticulture at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin. She's the person who designed the lovely gardens you see when you visit here, and she spends a lot of time educating people about using native plants to create beautiful gardens that require far fewer resources and serve as a home for wildlife, including pollinators. It's really great to have you here. Could you. you begin by telling us a little more about your background and gardening interests? Sure. So I've been, I've been here at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center for a little over 16 years. Um, and I started as a gardener. That was always my passion and having a background in ecology and restoration kind of I, uh, kind of topics. And then that really folded very nicely with the mission of the Wildflower Center to use native plants in gardens. As so I guess uh, I really got into gardening when I was in college and I was looking for a part-time job to help subsidize my education and was looking to work either at a coffee shop or a plant nursery. <laughs> they were both kind of sounded appealing, but I'm not a morning person. So the coffee thing probably wasn't going to work out for me as, as well. Um, so I started working at a local plant nursery and we specialized in native plants. And I was always interested in, you know, hanging out in the woods or in fields and just poking around and lifting up rocks and, you know, had a little terrarium where I grew up um, caterpillars into moths and butterflies just to see what they would turn into. And, right. you know, I've always done that kind of thing. So, um, you know, working at a plant nursery and taking one or two or three of everything home and playing with them and seeing what they do it kind of got compulsive for a while. <laughs> so then coming here, it was really nice to, to fold that horticulture piece with the, with the right. ecology and restoration kind of stuff. So, yeah, and, and so here at the Wildflower Center, tell me some of the things that you do. Um, yeah, so... Um, when I started working here, I was as a gardener, as I said, and um, which was great because I was able to really get familiar with the different areas. And one of the things that um, I was hired to do was to help with redesigning the planting plans. Um, I mean, the overall Wildflower Center was designed uh, previously by landscape architects, um, and but the planting designs had morphed over time, and um, so just trying to put them a little bit more organized and have some areas we wanted to keep more naturalistic and other areas I really wanted to push to be a little bit more formal or stylized. You know, people come to the Wildflower Center and you sort of expect that a native plant garden is going to be very wild or naturalistic looking. And I love that. And in certain areas we definitely promote, and you know, that's the, the point of that garden. But other people come maybe from other parts of the country or even locally and they have a different idea of what a botanical garden should look like or even what they want to see in their own home. Um, they want something that's, you know, tidier or more organized. So being able to show that, you know, just because you're using native plants doesn't mean that you have to have a messy or a naturalistic garden. It's how you design with those plants. And don't, that can't be an excuse for not using native plants. Right, right. 
so native plants. Let's let's talk about native plants. What first of all, what are they? What are native? Plants? Oh my, you got about a week to talk <laughs> about this. <laughs> that is a really tricky question to answer because um, it really varies so much. There's so many moving parts to that. But we have a shorthand at the Wildflower Center that's a plant that occurs in a given place through non-human introduction. It, it evolved in its location um, over time. And, you know, evolution is happening on a daily basis, but we don't see it at that scale. So it's a little bit vague how you apply that. But, um, you know, another shorthand that people use a lot is plants that were occurring here in the area before human, I mean, before um, European settlement came in. That's another. For, and that works fairly well for the United States, maybe not so much for other parts of the world. But, um, yeah, just, and it gets a little messy, too, because, you know, pre-Europeans were moving plants around too, and it's a little harder to, to determine if something is was native that was moved around a long time ago. Um, but there's some pollen records that they can. That's probably more than you wanted to know. But the point is that it's it's a real tricky question to answer. One of the other pieces of it that I think is important to um, to clarify that a lot of times isn't when you say you know I want to use native plants in my garden. Say you go to a garden center and you're asking for native plants, um, and they may give you something that's native to another part of the country. You know, are you talking about native to the United States or native to Texas or Central Texas? You know, so having some kind of geographic um, clarification on that really helps. And how how specific do you want to be about your area? And and but. But in general, um, you know, we say that it's good to plant native plants, but why? What, what are some of the benefits of having native plants in your garden? I think one of the main benefits that people are using native plants in landscapes is because they are more drought resistant, generally speaking. Of course, we have wetland plants too, but um, if you find the right, pla right plant for the right place, if you do a good job with figuring that part out, then you really, you really could have a beautiful lush garden and not have to water at all. Or maybe you just have smaller areas that you water to have certain plants that you really want to have, but you can really reduce the amount of water you use. And as Central Texas grows and as communities all over the place grow, water resources is always going to become more and more of, a, of an issue. So water conservation is huge. Um, I would also say a lot of it would have to do with just general maintenance and um, our native plants are adapted to local diseases and insects and are more likely to uh, be able to tolerate those kind of pest problems. Of course, there may be invasive pests that come in or pathogens that come in that might attack your plants. Um, but generally, they're going to be healthier. Um, one of the reasons that I think is really most important for using native plants is to provide benefits for wildlife. Um, again, the plants and animals have evolved together over uh, you know, thousands of years, and um, the native plants are going to be best suited for serving the, the needs of the local native animals. So that's a really important piece of it. So it's sort of a system that works together. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And, you know, I think just regional identity is really critical. You know, you can plant the same seven species all over the United States and look at a landscape and not have any idea where you are. Uh, but if you can use the local native plant palette, it's going to really give you that regional identity keep it interesting and not just homogenizing the whole landscape with using the same things over and over. Right. So so it would seem that there are a lot of benefits. There's yeah. Also, less there's water use. Many of these plants are just cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it takes less care. Uh, I know when I first moved to this area from the east, um, I actually brought some plants with me. 
plants that I, I just, because I've been a gardener for a long time, and I just couldn't, you know, you can't leave, leave them, them behind. Alone. Yeah, <laughs> I So that. I brought them, and of course they all died, except oh. for one, <laughs> because they weren't native. And yeah. I learned very early on that the smart thing to do was to plant natives. Yeah. Um, so the only thing that did survive was the bay tree, hmm. which is now quite big. <laughs> very good. Um, Okay, I understand you have more than 600 native plant species Mm -hmm. here at the Wildflower Center. Um, Do you have any favorites? Oh, gosh, that's just (laughs) such a horrible question to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't, you know, favorites shift from season to season, obviously. You know, Um, you forget how great something is, and then it starts blooming, and you just become, you know, totally enamored again. Um, I think this time of year, going into spring, I think that, you know, the the wine cups are really, Mm -hmm. you know, just beautiful, rich, saturated magenta colors. Um, but I really, I enjoy some of the more diminutive and more obscure flowers too. Like there's the pearl milkweed vine, Matilia vine, which has a green, um, like a little flower that has a pearl looking yes. center to it. And they're, they're just novel or milkweeds. You know, I love the flowers on a milkweed. I just think they're really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something about the architecture and the patterns that are, yeah, you know, it's really appealing. So when you go about designing, uh, you were talking about design, designing a garden, um, how do you go about selecting? I mean, there are so many different species of plants. How do you go about deciding this is what should be here and this is what should be here? Tell, can you go? Can sure. you give me a little yeah. idea of what that's like? So the first thing is to figure out what the program is. You know, what are you trying to achieve in the, any given bed? If it's just to look good, you know, that's a, one set of plants, perhaps. You know, high performance, you know, things that bloom a lot or have a lot of showy color. Um, or maybe you're trying to do a shade garden, something that's more toler- tolerant of um, you know, heavy, dark areas. You might not have as much color, but you need to be mindful of that. Or maybe you're trying specifically to attract wildlife or provide, you know, we have a lot of plants that are edible plants. You might want to have a native edible garden, so that would give you another set of plants to use. Um, so I'd figure that part out and then come up with a, I usually start by just kind of brainstorming a list of possibilities that fit within whatever the goals of the, of the space would be, and then start narrowing it down from there. Like, you know, looking at the space and does it make sense to have something tall in the back and short in the front and making sure you have um, structure balanced, you know, for the winter, is, it, is there enough evergreen structure, but also deciduous structure, but making sure that it's somewhat balanced. Um, there's another concept that I use that uh, somebody's called time sharing. And this is, I think, really important, especially when we're using native plants and we're not using bedding plants to fill in seasonally. It's really important that, you know, when one species is off, you know, maybe it's something like Turk's cap. This is an example I use a lot. Turk's cap is uh, in the hibiscus family. It likes the warm weather. It blooms all summer. It's really pretty. It's a great shade plant. But then it freezes back in the winter. And if you don't do anything else, you might just have bare mulch underneath it. But if you combine it with the giant spiderwort, that's a nice plant that grows throughout the wintertime. It has foliage that looks a lot like a daylily. Um, and so it grows all winter, and then they bolt and bloom in the spring, and they have these really pretty blue and purple lavender flowers on it. And then they go completely dormant when it starts warming up and the Turks cap come on. So you can have two, sometimes even more, different species happening in the same space that like the same conditions but maximize the, you know, the amount of time that you have something going. And I think Clever. that's a really critical yeah. design element is to be able to figure that out. And, you know, it's a lot of experimenting <laughs> and moving that's things a, around. <laughs> what a great idea, timeshare. 
But I, you know, I think textures from an aesthetic perspective, you want to blend different kinds of forms and textures with each other. And yeah. you know, if we're using native plants, I don't worry so much about color, uh, unless that's really one of your main goals of the project. Um, you know, the the, pl the plants are not so overly bred that they have huge, huge flowers so much. And it's easier to blend the flower colors together because you have more percentage of green to kind of soften or mm -hmm. mitigate the, the stronger colors of the flowers. So I think that makes it actually easier. Um, but you certainly could have color schemes too if you wanted to, to mess with that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think some so, of those other issues are going to be more important. So there's a lot that goes into it. It's, yeah. It's you know, what plants like process. shade? What's, what kinds will grow more in sun? Water requirements? How much water? What are the soils like? Um, are they rich and ha have lots of organic matter, or are they leaner and maybe they have more caliche or something? And you know, even what you might think of as poor soils may be really fine for certain plants. So, yeah, there's a lot to think about. Yeah. Okay, um, let's talk about lawns. Most uh, or many people in our area go for the perfectly lush green lawn, uh, but what are options to that? If, if somebody decided, you know, I'm just spending too much time mowing and too much time watering and too much water, um, what are the options? What yeah, can we lawns do? Lawns can be pretty resource intensive, mm -hmm. especially if you consider your time and how right. much it takes to mow them. Right. Uh, you know, it used to be that we were always recommending people use buffalo grass mm -hmm. uh, as a native turf grass. Sure. Um, it's very drought resistant and takes a lot of heat, and that's fine too. But over time, we found that people get really frustrated with it because it, it tends to allow for weeds. Um, you know, if you don't mow it, it gets thick enough and it can be fairly weed resistant, but most people want to keep it shorter than that. So we've developed here at the Wildflower Center uh, a blend of grasses, native species that we call Habiturf, and it's a base of three core plants um, and maybe some others too as available. But we basically start with that, that group of three. It's buffalo grass, uh, blue grama, and curly mesquite. And they're selected because they stay short and they have a a narrow leaf blade, so it doesn't look like you have three different things mm -hmm. going on. It has a more uniform look to it. The difference, though, would be that it wouldn't be green necessarily all year round. Yeah, that's a good point. So you can let those native turf grasses go dormant in the summertime. They certainly are going to brown out in the wintertime when it freezes, but pretty much most grasses do, unless you're doing an annual ryegrass or something. Um, but during the summer, if you choose not to water, it'll brown, it'll go dormant, but you don't it's not going to die, and then you could mow it perhaps to get rid of the, the brown stuff and then let it re-sprout again for the fall. Right. Um, so really, it, you don't have to water it very much to keep it right. going. And, and so that's the big advantage, yeah. is that once it's established, um, it's pretty much on its own, mm -hmm. and it doesn't even necessarily grow very that's a good point. Yeah, it doesn't right. get tall. I mean, it's maybe taller than most people would want as a lawn, although it's mature height, I think, is very pretty. I keep looking for Easter eggs. You know? <laughs> it's very lush. And, um, but if you want to keep it shorter, you know, it, it doesn't grow as fast as something like St. Augustine that takes a lot of water and is actively growing so much. So that's a nice benefit, too, is even if you do want to keep it short, it's not so fast that you have to be out there every weekend mowing it. Right. It does seem to be healthier, though, if you don't mow it too short. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And then if you're looking for a shady spot, you know, kind of a turf substitute for shade, um, one of the species that I've had a lot of uh, uh, questions about and works really well is a plant called horse herb, also called straggler daisy. Yeah. And if you have shade, you probably already have yeah. it in your yard. Yeah, well, we do. <laughs> Just encourage it's it. It's very lush. Yeah. yeah, and it stays short on its own, mm -hmm. so you don't have to mow it, but you can. It takes light to moderate foot traffic. Right. Um, 
Yeah. And it's it does great here. And mm -hmm. it's pretty. It has little yellow flowers and mm -hmm. that's a nice one too. Some of the sedges can also be really good as a turf substitute in a shady spot. Right. Right. Another issue that's of uh, a lot of great importance to all of us here in Texas and probably in maybe even elsewhere um, in the country is uh, heat, especially during a hot summer when, you know, you go out in your garden and all your beautiful little plants are drooping over. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, not that we can totally prevent it, uh, prevent that, but what, what are things we could do maybe to um, alleviate some of the heat stress for our plants? Yeah. So uh, the first thing is to plant the right plants for the space. Yeah, if you're using native plants that are truly adapted to the kind of heat you have, full sun, you know, be mindful. Sometimes you go to a nursery and the tag says full sun, but they're really talking about maybe another part of the country. Uh, our sun is a lot more intense. So, you know, if you're planting something that you know is native to your region, then um, that is the first huge step. Um, then from there, there are a number of things you can do um, if you choose to water, and most people would, um, making sure that you soak the soil thoroughly when you do water instead of just sprinkling the surface. That Sprinkling the surface really just encourages the roots to stay close to the surface, and then the deeper roots are going to have more capacity to draw moisture for a longer period of time. So it's better to not water your yard or your garden every day, but maybe once a week, but give it a good soaking. Um, that's really helpful. And also using mulch. And you can use traditional mulches like um, a shredded bark mulch, or we use here in certain um, gardens, we might use a mineral mulch, like a crushed, uh, crushed limestone, or we've even been using recycled glass, which is kind of nice. It has a totally different character to it, but it functions pretty much the same way. Um, so those kinds of materials will help mitigate the temperature on the surface of the soil and keep the roots cooler. You can also use plants themselves as a mulch, you know, using you know, filler plants between other things so that you don't have the sun hitting the ground directly and making the, the soil hot and also drying it out. Right. So those are some things that, uh, that can really help. So, so when we have plants that are drooping, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're on their way out. They're just responding to the current condition mm -hmm. and they'll most likely recover. But if that happens continuously, is that putting stress on the plant or...? Yeah, well, no. if you have a plant that's continuously wilting, you it's not because it's too wet. I mean, it, I mean, it might be that it's too wet because <laughs> if you right. overwater a plant, one of the symptoms is the similar to uh, overly dry plants, which is wilting. Um, but if it continuously happens and you think that the water is okay, then it might be that it's just in the wrong place. It might be um, a plant that's in too much sun. A lot of times, though, you won't actually have a lot of wilting at, uh, at the later stages. You'll just have sun scorch or just the plants just look peaked, they, you know, mm. pale and, and just not very vigorous. And that's another sign that there may be in too much sun. Okay. Um, so nat uh, native plants also have another advantage, uh, which I've read a lot about on the Wildflower Center website, uh, which is that they attract pollinators. And so I wanted you to tell us a little bit about, when we talk about pollinators, we're not just talking about bees, because I think a lot of people think pollinator bee, sure. uh, but what, what else are we talking about when we're talking about pollinators, and why do we want them? Sure, the yeah. So yeah, most people think of honeybees, which are really important pollinators in our area, but we also have native bees, and that's something that um, you know, more, more people are getting aware of, of trying to promote the native, the native bees as well, bumblebees and other bees too. 
Um, but really some of our really helpful, important pollinators are things like flies. And people don't think of flies as being pollinators, but they definitely can do a lot of work. Some beetles, um, certainly hummingbirds and butterflies can fall into that category, and moths. Um, so yeah, we have a wide range of, of pollinators that, that help us out. And what they do is they're able to uh, transfer pollen from one plant to another. You know, plants can't get up and find a mate, so they have to rely on some mode of transportation to get their, their pollen from one plant to another. So animals being mobile are really helpful with that. Um, so what happens is once the pollen gets transferred from one, one plant to another, it can fertilize the, the new plant, which then can make seed and reproduce. So without that, most plants uh, wouldn't be able to reproduce, which is a very important thing for right. us as, sure. as humans on this earth. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so yeah. many of our plants, like I think a third of the plants that provide food for people are pollinated by pollinators. Right, right. Um, so uh, what, what are the types of plants that would attract, obviously we want to bring more of these pollinators into the garden. Are there particular plants that attract them? Sure, yeah, I think um, most people are probably familiar with hummingbirds being attracted to flowers that have red or orange uh, color to them. Long tubular shaped flowers are uh, good for attracting hummingbirds, um, and also some of the larger butterflies. The butterfly that's large enough that have, that they have a long enough proboscis that can actually re reach the nectar in the bottom of the nectar tube. Um, but hummingbirds will come to other plants too. It doesn't have to be, you know, I've seen them going to blue or white flowers, and they don't have to be long tubular shaped flowers either, but, um, but that's generally what they're attracted to. They don't smell, so finding fragrant flowers is not really that important for uh -huh. a hummingbird. Yeah. So if you're trying to attract somebody like a bee, they like smelly stuff. So um, providing fragrant flowers is definitely something that they like. And bees, you know, this is a strong generalization, but a lot of insects tend to see things more in the uh, ultraviolet range of colors. Um, they don't really see reds as much. Um, so planting a lot of blue flowers could be really helpful in attracting bees and other pollinators. Um, Butterflies in particular like flowers that are in clusters, like a lantana or a sunflower. Those are really good examples of the clustered flowers provide yeah. one-stop shopping. You know, they can land. First of all, they have a platform to land on, so they don't have to hover and use up, you know, expend that extra energy to hover. And then they can just sit from all of those different individual flowers. So plants in the verbena family, like lantanas or verbenas, uh, are really good. And then in pretty much anything in the sunflower family, the daisies, sunflowers themselves, asters, those kind of things are really, really good for attracting a wide range of pollinators. Right. Um, in particular, uh, one of the butterflies that uh, apparently we're seeing fewer and fewer of is the monarch. Um, can you talk about that and what plants we, maybe we can plant to uh, help feed them and keep them around? Yeah. So as adults, most butterflies will take nectar from a wide range of plants. So nectar plants is important, but it's not real specific necessarily what they like. Although, um, having said that, um, monarchs and also queens, which are closely related, um, really are attracted to, like our Greg's mist flower that people put in their gardens around here, they love it. And so if you're trying to provide a really good nectar source, specifically for queens, but sometimes monarchs will go to it too, that's a really good plant. Um, but what's more critical is getting the right plants for the caterpillars to eat. Um, and 
milkweeds are pretty much the sole source of food for those caterpillars. So having milkweeds uh, available in your garden is going to be the most critical piece to getting to allowing the monarchs to reproduce. Right. Mm -hmm. And are, there are different, is this true that there are different kinds of milkweeds? Yeah. It's not just one plant. Right. And they look different as well. Yeah. Is that yeah. True? And they bloom at different times. Oh, they do. Um, different species will bloom earlier or later, different yeah. colored flowers. Some grow better in shade. Some, you know, yeah. they're all different, um, yeah. different kinds. I don't know how many species we have in Texas, but I think it's something like 15 different species probably in in the state. And, and is that something I could grow from seed, or is would, would it be better to buy the plant, or what's the best way to You go? can certainly try them from seed. Uh, it seems pretty much that most people have a hard time growing milkweeds from seeds direct sowing. Um, now, if you grow them in pots, like we've been pretty successful growing them here in the nursery, um, then that's a you know that's another way to do it. But it seems like if you if you grow them in a con, in a container setting, um, one of the critical pieces is to not overwater them before their roots get established. We have a high percentage of them damping off if if you let them get too wet or stay wet. But once they get a good developed root, they're pretty uh, they're quite a bit better. Uh, you can directly plant them at that point into the ground. Um, if you have milkweeds on your site already, that that's the best. Just don't get rid of them. And really, if you can preserve what's already there, that's way by far the easiest sure. to do. But you can buy them. Um, and different species are more and more common all the time, which is really great. It used to be that the only milkweeds you could buy would be the, the Texas butterfly weed, the Asclepius tuberosa mm -hmm. with the orange flowers, right. uh, which is a great plant, but it's a little bit tricky for us here. It, where you see them, they grow more in sandy soils. The, the species name tuberosa means that it has a tuber, like a carrot. And they don't have a easy time pushing through heavy soils. So if you have you know, sandy soils that move around a little bit more, you're going right. to... If you have soil that'll grow well, uh, good carrots, then you're probably going to be happy with those too. Right. Um, and it used to be the only other species you can get were the mil Mexican milkweeds, and they're not real ideal. There have been some research that indicates that there are other problems with growing those and as a food source for the caterpillars. Um, a recent study, and I think it was just a one, I don't, I don't know the, all the details, but a recent study indicated that the Mexican milkweeds might actually be fooling the adult butterflies into thinking that they're in Mexico, and then they don't continue to migrate, and so they get stuck really? here in the wintertime and freeze. Uh, that was just one study, wow. but, yeah. you know, these kinds of things, this is another reason why using native plants can be really yes. helpful, because mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about those kind of unforeseen problems that, mm -hmm. who would have thought, but... Mm -hmm. Um, you just can't predict those kind of things. So, That's pretty amazing. Yeah, just yeah. the fact that, that there are more milkweeds available is, is good. And some of the ones that do better for us around here, things like the right. antelope horns, does really well, and they don't seem to mind that heavier clay soil, and they do. Right. They're really pretty, too. And so, so one of the things, we, if we're uh, encouraging milkweeds in our uh, gardens, we have to get used to when the... Uh, caterpillars are on them to first of all leave them on there and not consider them a pest <laughs> and 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 then be able to tolerate the eaten leaves sure yeah <laughs> that is one of the trickier things for people to <laughs> yeah to accept that that was andrea delong amaya director of horticulture at the ladybird johnson wildflower center and don't forget to visit the Wildflower Center and their website, where you can find out about workshops, educational materials, and loads of other valuable information. 
Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth.